Corinthians chapter 4, page 808 in the church Bibles. And in just a second, after we pray, we're going to read from verse 6 all the way to verse 7. <laughs> As I was preparing this week, I was thinking, boy, what a, what a smart verse, not by design, at least my design, what a smart verse to begin the new year with. I think it'll help us if you have a, a worship folder, thinking properly of ourselves. Verse 6, now brothers and and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man or one person over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, you are the potter and we are the clay. We are the work of your hands, clearly. And we are here ultimately because you determine it to be so. And so we thank you for the great privilege and the great necessity of public worship. Thank you for the songs that we sang, thoughtfully chosen, fitting for this day. We ask, God, that you would grant to each of us now believing hearts that are ready to receive your truth, humble minds that are prepared to think clearly about your truth, and submissive wills that are ready at the prompting of your spirit to make some sensible application of your truth in our lives. So please then, God, let grace abound in all of us and in me, in me, God, the chief of sinners and the least of all pastors, and as your word is preached, for Jesus' sake, amen. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, or 6 through 7, excuse me. This is J.B. Phillips' translation of the verses that were read. I've used myself and Apollos above as an illustration so that you might learn from what I've said about us not to assess man above his value in God's sight and thus may avoid the friction that comes from exalting one teacher against another. For who makes you different from somebody else? And what have you got that was not given to you? And if anything has been given to you, why boast of it as if it were something you yourself had achieved? That's J.B. Phillips. Now, the way in which we understand ourselves or view ourselves will directly influence the way we treat others and how we determine to carry ourselves in this life. Therefore, it becomes very, very important that we know what the Bible says in relation to thinking properly about ourselves. When Paul wrote the church in Rome, he said in chapter 12, verse 3, do not think of yourself too highly. Do not cherish uh, exaggerated ideas of yourself or, or your importance, but rather try. Try to think of yourself with a sober judgment. And so the whole bent of those verses seems to be that an idea of holding a perspective on life, if you would, that keeps ourselves at bay. A perspective which does not surely come natural to to any of us. A perspective which recognizes the temptation under God that by nature we take pleasure in inflated views about ourselves or how important we believe ourselves to be. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you are sensible people. Let me ask you this question. At this point in our culture's history, 
Do we think that our great problem is too much humility or too much pride? Is humanity's big problem, its self-esteem is too low or its self-esteem too high? Do, do we think that our problem is that we love ourselves too little or we love ourselves too much? Which one? Which one is our fundamental problem? And as you're considering that question, ask yourself this. At the root of man's first sin in the garden, and so every sin since, was it that Adam and Eve thought too lowly of themselves? Or was it that they thought too highly of themselves? Now hold that thought in your mind, and you'll remember way back last year, just a few weeks ago though, that before the Christmas season, we were learning in 1 Corinthians that Paul has been confronting God's church in Corinth with um, this problem of disunity. And that began really in chapter 3. And he was saying that it was not that division was impossible in God's church. It was just that division had no place in God's church. And one of the root causes of division in the church in Corinth, but also you can apply this principle to any local body, is it always comes down to people's pride. And at the heart of their pride, at least in the case of the Corinthian church, was that their conviction, which assumed that, that they had the right to pass judgment on things that were reserved for only God to judge. And in their case, namely the leaders in the church and the truth in the church, which was unchanging and being taught there. But of course, there's none so blind that will not see. And of course, they would not see. And because they could not see, the, the church had settled down in this kind of cozy illusion that they had become the very best they could be. That's why uh, verse 8 is there. Paul says, you become kings. And because they think that they had become the best they could be, they presume they could pass judgment on that which is clearly reserved for God. So in the case of the Corinthian church, under them, understanding themselves to be so fantastic, verse 8, again, like rich kings, they thought that they could pass judgment. And if one thinks of themselves too highly, the result will all, always be this, a self-granted ability to judge, a complete lack of humility, pride will be abounding, and division will be the byproduct. And so these Corinthian Christians needed to know Paul's words in verses 6 and 7 that if they were going to think properly about themselves, then they're going to need some help because in their pride, they needed to learn the lesson of humility because pride is the mortal enemy of humility and pride is the root of all disunity in God's church. Loved ones, pride is very dangerous. Listen to your Bible, Psalm 25, 9. God leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Proverbs 13, 10. Pride only breeds quarrels. Psalm 138, 6. God looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Proverbs 16, 5. The Lord detests all the proud in heart. Proverbs 16, 19. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share your plunder with the proud. And then finally, James wrote, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but shows favor, grace to the humble. Now you take that and compare it to the line of thinking that invaded the church in Corinth, the line of thinking which said, on the basis of their improper judgment, they would exalt the self at the expense of what? Now listen carefully. They exalt the self... At the expense of what? Nothing? Absolutely not. 
Because when we exalt the self, it always will come at the expense of either others or at the expense of God. And in the case of the Corinthian church, their pride comes at the expense of unity and the precious body of Jesus Christ. So during my Christmas shopping this, this past year, I came across a book from the very beautiful entertainer. Her name is Jennifer Lopez. The title of her book was True Love. And so the whole bent of the book was she was going to tell us what true love was. So I just couldn't help myself. I didn't buy the book, but I picked up the book and started scanning through it. And so I found in the very last chapter was her answer to, to the book, uh, to the question, what is true lo- love? And she quotes uh, Charlie Chaplin, of all people, and she quotes these words that he wrote on the day of his 70th birthday to give the answer to what true love is. And, and actually, she was boasting because she said that she arrived at that answer at the age of 43, and Mr. Chaplin didn't get to the answer till he was 70. But this is the quote. Okay, this is the answer to what is true love. You ready? As I began to love myself, I freed myself of anything that is no good, food, people, Things, situations, and everything that drew me down away from myself. At first, I called this attitude a healthy egoism. Today, I know it as love of oneself. Now, loved ones, clearly, that line of thinking will wreck a life. It will wreck a church. We, we are broken people, uh, sometimes very good, but sometimes very bad. And if one loves themselves suggested, has suggested, removing those things that, that turn us away from ourselves, then I can guarantee you this. Either one, it will be a very, very lonely life, or two, it will be a very, very, very tiny church. I mean, that lady is a wonderful entertainer, and she's, and she's beautiful, but She's on her third marriage. And I bet if she had to start it all over again, she wouldn't put herself through that difficulty. So if we believe our Bible, if we believe that the Bible is God's final word, and if we believe that the Scriptures have all that is necessary for life and godliness, if we believe that the Bible helps us to think properly, and if we believe that the great issue of our day is not low self-esteem, but rather a failure to think properly about ourselves, then we need to let... God's word amend our culture and not let our culture amend God's word. So it becomes very interesting to me. Is it not that Paul, the apostle of Christ, warns Timothy to Timothy 3 that one of the sad and dangerous features of the last days would not be bombs and bullets. This is what Paul said. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People, men and women and young people, people would be lovers of themselves. So the great danger of the end is not going to be uh, Allah be praised. It's going to be I'm number one. I am, I am awesome. Did you, did you see me online? I am awesome. So if the evil one has an agenda to advance his kingdom as this uh, time draws to a close, then we need to recognize this and we need to prepare for it. Because surely we live in a day in which, which gives to us as a cure... What the Bible says is actually a disease. Now I want you to understand this. Our culture daily suggests to us a cure. Uh, Me first, me number one, lovers of ourselves. What the Bible says is actually a disease. So you ask yourself the question, how do we get there? 
Well, it becomes, I think, pretty obvious since God has been voted out of Western culture, since God is now uh, either a cosmic principle or a subjective fortune teller, or God is our, our life coach, since God is what you would like him to be, and not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given himself clearly in his word and clearly in his son, men and women are in total then cluelessness in our day about these things. And you say, well, why? Well, let me just read you another passage from Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking, their thinking became futile, became useless. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And out of that foolish heart, they passed out the answers for our day that are totally wrong. And so we ought not to be surprised then that the wisdom of our age runs completely counter to the wisdom of God's word. And loved ones, if we believe that we are being fashioned into the image of Christ, then humility in us will be a work of God. It will be a work of God. So if we're going to think properly about ourselves, then, then under God, we need to think about ourselves biblically. And when we think our, about ourselves properly, then we're going to have to understand that how we think about ourselves will directly affect our relationships with one another. And it will directly affect how we serve God and if we serve God at all in his church. Augustine wrote this, 4th century. Listen. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former in a word glorifies in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. Now, again, you're sensible people. Are these things not so? And so Paul understands this. So in order to call the Corinthians uh, back to Christ, back to, to usefulness, back to thinking properly about themselves, he asks these crucial questions in these verses, which we come to now. And so right away, we go to our first heading uh, before we come to the Lord's table this morning. Number one, what I have done. So, so the church then has a problem with pride. They were proud of themselves, proud of their gifts, proud of their accomplishments, and even proud of their teachers. They were pri- prideful of everything that God had given them by his grace. So instead of being humbly grateful, they were horribly boastful. And where that line of living is maintained, as we've been saying, if that line is maintained in a Christian, in a church, then and relationships will inevitably be fractured. And unity will inevitably be wrecked. And that was the case here. And again, that will be the case in any local church. So what Paul says in verse 6a, I hope your Bible's open. This is what he does. He explains what he has done. And what he has done is used Apollos and himself as an example. Verse 6, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. Now you shouldn't think here that Paul and Apollos were at odds with each other. They weren't. They weren't. It was the Corinthian church that was playing that that guy is better than, than that guy game. It's a horrible game, but the church was playing that. But what he does then, he uses themselves as a clever little device so that people would say something like this. Hey, wait a minute. Paul and Apollos, they don't have any problem in these things. And as they're thinking about that, suddenly the lights will turn on and they'll say, okay, I get it. He's using himself as an illustration because we're the ones with the problems. And they would be right. Verse 6, now brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. So it's interesting. Pride is a horrible problem. But he doesn't come out firing, does he? He uses himself as an illustration. So the first thing you have to ask when you look at that verse is what are these things? 
Well, the things that Paul is referring to here are the things beginning in chapter 3 and then on to chapter 4 that it's only God's prerogative to pass judgment on anyone and anything. So it's God's church, it's God's work, it's God's power, it's God alone giving the increase, it's God alone um, making things grow, therefore God alone judges and God alone reserves that judgment until when? Chapter 4, verses 1, 2, 3, 4 there, until the very end. Until the very end. So what he says is, I've done that and I've applied it to, to, to myself and to Paulus and I take these tr- truths that I've been teaching, and I've been teaching myself those very things. And that's our first point. That's what Paul did. Paul then goes on to say, number two, why I have done it. And that begins there in the second part of verse six. So what have you done, Paul? Well, I've applied my instruction to myself and to Apollos. There's a, there's a line that preachers should know. Let's see if I can remember it. That you haven't preached to the congregation until you preach to yourself. That's it. So every morning when you go to the pulpit, you know that. You preach to yourself, pastor, before you ever preach to the congregation. That's what Paul is saying. And so what has he done now is, well, verse 6. And you can see it there. What I've done is for your benefit. For your benefit. And so right here, the heart of Paul comes out wonderfully clear because the reason why Paul is writing and the reason why Paul is just agonizing with this church because this church will cause Paul a lot of trouble. He writes two letters that we know of. There's another letter that we don't have that he probably wrote as well. This church has caused Paul a lot of trouble. I mean, he could have just gone, I'm through with you. So why is he doing this? Because he wants them to benefit from his instruction. And loved ones, just think with me. Anytime any one of us are given the privilege to teach, whether it be little children in a Bible class or teens in in a grown-up class or adults, or home groups, or behind this scary box. Anytime anyone is given the privilege to preach, unless we teach for the benefit of the listener, then we are way, way off the mark. On occasion, you'll hear people say, well, I like to teach because it makes me feel good. <laughs> and you want to say, well, well, thank you. you know, glad you could use me to that end. Uh, when you're done teaching, can I rub your feet and your back as well? I mean, what is that? Paul would have none of that. He says, I want you to benefit from my instruction. And so you ask the question, okay, well, how will they benefit from the instruction? Well, once God's word is preached, then the application comes to God's people. And that's the middle of verse 6. They need to learn it, and they need to apply it. And, And you can't miss this. This is like a beautiful pattern for the progress of the fellowship and the things of God when instruction is taking place. So don't miss verse 6 there. The heart of the pastor is to teach in such a way which will benefit the people so that he and they can learn the instruction and together they can make application in their lives and together they can advance along in the things of God. Together. Together. Jesus knew this. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, that everyone who hears the word of God and puts it into practice is like what? Like a wise man building on the rock. But the one who hears the word and doesn't put it into practice is a fool. They build on sand and the thing just crumbles as soon as the first storm of life hits. Jesus also said this, and look, uh, who's my family? The ones who hear the word and put it into practice. So then it demands a question, right? Week by week, are you benefiting from the instruction of God's word? 
I mean, are you really paying attention? Are you taking things seriously that you hear? Are you making some kind of application in your life that you're not only saying, you know, when you go home, well, that was nice and that was fun and that was boring. Are you checking your Bible to make sure what I'm telling you is the truth? How do you know that's in Matthew 7, what I just said about Jesus? How do you know? We should go home and check. Because the key to benefiting from instruction of God's word is, first of all, that it will be faithfully proclaimed. And second of all, it will be humbly received. Listen to your Bible. This is James chapter 1. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Don't just listen to the word. And so deceive yourself. Do what it says. So so ask yourself this question. I probably won't ask this in the second service. You look like nice people. I'll ask this in the first. Say that you're coming here week by week and you're just not getting it. Okay, something's happening. You're not learning. You're not growing. Okay, here's the questions you need to ask yourself. Number one, do I come here with a humble heart? Number two, do I come here with a teachable spirit? Number three, um, am I struggling for holiness? Because unholy living makes for unclear hearing when the word is preached. And, and number four, am I, am I willing to learn? And then number five, does my pastor sweat and cry and weep as he prepares for the instruction of God's word week by week? Those are the questions. Those are the big questions. So then what Paul does here is he uses an illustration to make an application so that the whole church can benefit and learn, not just the saying, but listen here, uh, but the meaning of the saying. That's verse 6, so that you may know, um, you may learn from the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. So you're not just spewing out Bible, you know exactly what it means. And you see how it's in quotes there? There's, these quotes are going to be all throughout the rest of, of the letter. And the reason why they're in quotes here is that they know that this is a well-known saying of Paul. Paul always says, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. Uh, keep your Bible. Keep your Bibles open. Study your Bible. Don't, don't go across the line. Over and over again. That's Paul's mantra. And so Paul knows that they're going to benefit from the learning by knowing the meaning of the staying. And when they stay on the line, then verse 6, this is important. If they do all that, if they get the instruction and humbly receive it and make some application, then the end of verse 6, then you will not take pride in one man against another. Now you see, there, there it is. That's the exact Bible answer for disunity and disharmony. If the problem is pride, if the problem is exalting one man over another, or if the problem is judgmentalism, then how will the congregation become aware that has learned the lesson of Paul and begin to apply it? Well, the answer is straightforward, and it's unchanging. There will not be cliques. There won't be divisions. There won't be loud and proud judgments in the church. That's the answer. Okay, question. Division in the church? Okay, yes. So what's the answer? Appeasement? No, listen carefully. Answer. Bible faithfully proclaimed. Bible humbly received. Bible carefully applied into our lives. Again. Bible faithfully proclaimed. Bible humbly received. Bible carefully applied into our lives. And so the specific context in the church in Corinth was that they had individuals focusing on their main man or their main lady. And they 
had not been focusing on Jesus Christ. That's the lesson they needed to learn. Now, because of that, I just have to say this. I mean, that doesn't come as any shock to us. I mean, the groupie mentality is, is part and parcel of much of popular Christianity. There's the A-list preachers, and there are the B-list preachers. And the A-list preachers are treated like rock stars and superstars. There's the one. They're the man. That's the guy. He really knows. She's the lady. He, she really knows. It's not helpful at all. What do you have? We'll get to this in a second. What do you have? What do they have that he didn't receive? And, you know, it's not helpful. And I think, I don't know this to be true, but I think it could be why there's so, convu- so many or so few conversions in America. You're rock star people. So it wasn't God by his spirit. It was, it was them and their clever little stories. I'm not sure. You'll have to think that out on your own. Now listen very carefully. The Bible is clear. Those who teach in the church are to be honored. 1 Timothy 5, 7, uh, 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. That's clear. The Bible says that people like me should be respected and held in high regard. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And the Bible even says, Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, think hard about them and copy their Christianity. But there is a huge difference between a godly respect and ungodly exaltation or even expectation. There's a huge difference between loving gratitude and forbidden loyalty and flat-out cruelty. And when one gives a forbidden loyalty to, to a leader or a pastor or some person, then that cuts right into the loyalty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will inevitably lead to pride and arrogance and things will go quickly, horribly wrong in their life and in the life of the church. I mean, like on a personal level, I get followers. Follow me on Twitter. I get that. I get it. I understand that. We communicate with people. I know it. But, but on another level, it kind of bothers me that people say, follow me. Paul would say it like this, follow me as I follow Christ. That's how Paul would say it. And that's why these little verses like this, verse 6, are important. You can't just, just you know, jump over them so quickly. They, they're a principle there that can help us. So here we go. Paul says, I've given you an illustration. That's what I've done. Why have I done it? So that you might benefit. How do you benefit? Well, you benefit by learning and knowing the meaning. Don't go beyond what is written. And you'll know that you've learned that meaning when the application of God's truth is set loose into a local congregation and there is gracious humility and it's abounding and pride-filled disunity and judgmentalism is reducing. That's how you'll know it's making some headway in the church of Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our final point then, how we should answer or how you and I should answer. And so after Paul says what he says in verse 6, then he gives verse 7, these three tough, holy cow, they're tough, but necessary questions to kind of bring this all home. Question number one, in light of all that stuff in verse 6, who makes you and I different than anyone else? Now the answer to that question is not God. It doesn't fit the context. Uh, the Greek verb there is the word for, for different is the word diakrina. And it means not only difference, but superiority. So the question Paul is asking in verse 7 is this. Who gave you the right to regard yourself as superior? That's what he's saying. 
how come you think you're so special? How come you believe that everyone is supposed to listen to you and prefer you and cater to you? Uh, why would you think that? That's what Paul is asking. Remember the title of our talk, Thinking Properly About Ourselves. So what Paul is doing here is removing any improper sense of entitlement that one might have in a local congregation. 4.45-ish, Friday night, or Friday evening, I guess, because it was dark here when I was here. So I called my wife and I said, do you have any good poems about people who are prideful? She goes, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. Well, she didn't get back to me that day, but she sent me this email and I looked at it yesterday morning and I have to read this to you about pride. This is wonderful. I'm practically perfect in every respect. I haven't a flaw you could ever detect. As soon as you know me, I'm sure you'll agree. There's no, no one around who's perfect as me. I'm handsome and rich with a generous heart. I'm funny and charming, totally smart. At school in my class, I only get A's. I'm, a, I'm also athletic in so many ways. My clothes are expensive. My hair is just right. My teeth are all straight and they're shiny and white. I'm practically perfect. I'm sure you could tell. And oh, did I mention... I'm humble as well. You just think with me. If we come into a context where we, we constantly hear that, you know, pumped in our heads, we're really special and we're really different and we're really superior, how can you put that into a church? How can you put that into a church and then say, who makes you different than anyone else? Who makes you think or what makes you think that you're superior? I mean, what would their answer be? Hey, it's me. <laughs> It's me. And you'd have to say, well, dear friend, who are you? And we know we might try to set up ourselves as superior, different in the world, conversation, social media, whatever. But deep down, we have to ask this question, what makes us different than anyone else? Now listen carefully because this will help you. It's true that scholars tell us here that there were some people in the Corinthian church who were convinced that on the basis of their private personal revelation from God that they were superior than others. See, that's why Paul said what he said in verse 6, don't go beyond what is written. Because if you go beyond what is written and take your private personal revelations and throw them into the life of the church, what's going to happen? Well, most of us don't get those personal private revelations. I've never had one in my life. And so you assume that you have a better word than God's given word in the pages of the Bible. I think if Paul was alive, he would write something like this. Listen, if you get a personal private revelation, don't blog it, don't post it, don't make a movie about it, don't write a book about it, don't go on tour and tell people about it. Just stop it. You're not helping and you're ruining everything because you set yourself up as superior than everyone else. I think that's what Paul was saying. Because the very thing that causes division and disunity in God's church, says Paul, is when we think that we're special, we're different, we're superior than everyone else. And we just let that rip through the life of the church. And you know, my experience in this tells me, and specifically in my first pastoral, usually in a very, very small church, there's always like one person who's the superior one. And he knows it or she knows it, and they just let it rip. And it's so horrible. Holy cow, it's just horrible. Okay, second question. We need to get moving here. What do you have that you didn't receive? That's the question. Well, what's the answer to that? What do we have that we didn't receive? If you have a good church, a good life, a good spouse, good kids, good pastor, good car, good, good parents, good smarts, good nation to live in, good provision, good property, good prospects, uh, who, do you, who do you think gave that to you? And what about your spiritual gifts? Forgiveness, redemption, hope, purpose, life, eternal life. 
Loved ones, which of these lovely things did we achieve on our own? And which of these things do we not thank God for? You see, every one of those things are a gift from God. So how can we look in condemnation to our unsaved friends and family? How? How? How can we look in condemnation to the most difficult people we may know? How can we look in judgment on those who have more than we do or have less than we do? How can we? We can't. Why not? Because God is the one who parcels those things out. What do you have that you did not receive? G.K. Chesterton, if my children wake up on Christmas morning and have someone to thank for putting candy in their stocking, have I no one to thank for putting two feet in mine? What do we have that we didn't receive? Nothing. Last question, verse 7c, if you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? That just says it all, right? So this is a very, very challenging message for people who are just stuck on themselves. This is challenging for people who can, just can't zip their lip just for a moment. Boasting. Prideful. Here we go. And it's only when we come to the cross. In fact, around the Lord's table this morning, when we get clarity about these things. Let me just end like this. If you could see what I once was, if you could go with me, back to where I started from, then I know you would see I'm only a sinner saved by grace. How could I boast on anything I've ever seen or done? How could I dare to claim as mine the victories God has won? Where would I be had not God brought it to me gently to this place? I'm here to say I am nothing but only a sinner saved by grace. You see, loved ones, that is thinking properly about ourselves. That is thinking properly in the church. And that is saneness. (laughs) That is saneness that, that makes us bearable. And it makes us approachable. And it makes us um, Christ-like. In a very confused world. I think Paul, if he closed this sermon, he would say this to the Corinthian church. Back off. Settle down. Quiet down. And think. Think. Let's pray together. And if those who will be sovereign in communion would come forward, our gracious God, we thank you for this day that you've given us and the time that we have together. And we want to get this so right, God. We want to be um, winsome and attractive people for the glory of your name so that others might see you and us. So give us the grace then if we need it this morning to remove ourselves, to look away from ourselves and turn to you, the living God and the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.